This is a crypto finance podcast. We are holding internal knowledge sessions and publish selected episodes to share our know-how and experience with you. In the following session, we took advantage of looking at the code together. This of course does not transport as well to this audio format. However, we think that it's still very easy to follow for, and for your convenience, the complete source code of the carbon vote contract is shown in the show notes, very likely visible in your podcast player. Enjoy. So we will be talking about the most important uh, smart contract that happened, period. Of course, I'm talking about the carbon vote. What is the carbon vote? Does somebody have a, some grasp of the history of Ethereum? Okay, so Vitalik happened, then Ethereum happened, then smart contracts on Ethereum happened. Inevitably, smart contracts, failed smart contracts happened. And then the DAO happened, right? And when the DAO happened, uh, there was a decision to be made. There was a, the decision on, do we do a hard fork of the Ethereum blockchain or not? This decision was being done as a vote on the Ethereum blockchain. And by that, this is why it's a very simple smart contract, but it's a very consequential smart contract. Because, because the, the result of that smart contract vote collection was literally being used in order to decide if Ethereum should be, should be forked or not. There was the birth of Ether Classic, uh, but there was also kind of a coming to agreement. Very big social experiment, very few participating votes. I don't have the numbers in my mind, but we might be able to see them later. The rules of this vote were that, hey, you can vote and your vote is, is weighted with your coins. So you vote from an address and the, the coins on that number of ether on that address contribute to how valuable your vote is. You can vote for that, you can vote against that. And then in the end, there is a decision. Did more people vote yes or no, and how do you do this? What I would really like to talk about, because this, this is, um, is, is always brought up as, as one of the major use cases for smart contracts. Right? These days, for use cases for smart contracts, one that always comes up is voting on the blockchain. So what features, what design criteria, what, um, what characterization does this voting smart contract for the most important vote of Ethereum have to have? Just, just start. This is not a tech question. This is really verifiability. Verifiability. Yes. What else? No double No double voting. No okay. Which, from a tech perspective, is really tough because you need to somewhat keep record of who did already vote in order to prevent him from voting again. Which is. So sending your ether to another address and then voting with this address again. Also not can also not happen. Yeah. yeah and also that uh, result of the vote is respected. Yes, that's of course uh, that's a, that's a tough one because uh, this very much goes into this enforceability. You need a result of the vote and you need something to happen based on the result of the vote. Um, since the thing that happened was hey we fork the blockchain and we do not fork the blockchain that's actually an, from that perspective an out of chain event. Right, so yeah, you cannot you cannot guarantee enforceability. But but what we do need is we need a result, right? Simple as that. We do need a result for this vote. What else do we need? So we need a possibility to vote. We need to be able to, to to prevent people from voting multiple times, either by just calling the contract twice. So you need a record of who did vote, 
or by sending the coins elsewhere and voting that way. Time limits. Time limits, okay. What else do we need? Privacy. Just, sorry? Privacy. So Privacy. I, I don't know, it depends do if you want it or not. It's if people can know whether yeah. you voted or not. For the carbon vote, that was not actually a topic. It was public, but it's in, in principle, yes. Why should this be a democratic decision? Well, it was... Uh, it, it, okay, let's, let's go to the history first. It was not a democratic decision, because we, we can look at the numbers in a second, but it was like something like 100 addresses voted in total, and of that, uh, one was the address of the foundation, which, which had like 80% of all coins. But, but leaving that point aside, I want to use this as some as a blueprint for how does voting on the blockchain work. And let's just say we want a democratic decision about something. There is actually, but that's a good point. There is not, there is no way. Uh, you always have the civil attack problem. Yeah. Civil attack problem. Mm -hmm. You can not know how many people actually voted for something, because I can have 10,000 addresses on the Ether blockchain. So if 10,000 people voted for something, that could just have been me. So something like coin-weighted um, votes are possible. People-weighted votes are not possible, because for that you would need to know who, which of the coins of, of multiple addresses belong to the same person. If you make a mini sign when you are a shareholder, you vote according to the money. Absolutely. And I think it's not the voting, it's the relevant aspect of the thing. It's just... The decision-making uh, uh, aspect is developing from that it is hoping it could be something else. Yeah. Uh, I actually think that this is an interesting point um, that I would like to be brought up from the legal side at some point, uh, because I, I think actually that that this makes ether, right? That you had like a vote corresponding to the amount of ether, the amount of shares in this project that you have, that should make ether a security. Wow. Right. That's not the topic of today. So, uh, what did we get? We got, uh, you need a result, you need to prevent double voting, you need uh, ideally enforcing something to happen based on the result of that. Of, right? You need uh, tracking of who did vote already. So, now a question to the programmers here. How many lines of codes? Minimum. Probably the biggest problem would be the tracking the coins, how, how they flow to, to avoid double voting. This can be, I guess, kind of tricky. Yeah, let's look at the full code. Okay. So actually, so this is this is the vote that happened. Um, this is actually uh, not one contract. It's two contracts. There is a contract where you vote yes, and there is a contract where you vote no. You could probably also have done it as one contract that has a function vote yes and a function vote no, but there is not actually a point of doing this. Right? So we'll see. So there are two contracts. Those are the two contracts I use. Let me open both of them. That's uh, for extra fun. Now I lost track of which one is um, which one is which. I guess it doesn't matter much. So it's something like like 15 lines, and most of that is comment. And I will guide you through all of this now. So this is comment. <laughs> this is just declaring. Now we start a contract. This one is saying this contract does have the the feature that it can omit. Uh, it can emit a log statement. It can emit a log statement of type somebody voted. Okay. Then this thing has a function. The function that has no name. It's a bit special. It's uh, also really used by the use 
two smart contracts and not just one, because uh, a function call is, is much more difficult to, to execute in most of the client software than just sending funds. And the, the unnamed function is being called if you just send ether to that address. Okay. Then what this thing does is it does lock who voted, right? It, it locks that somebody voted uh, into the Ethereum virtual machine. Uh, and the argument here is who voted, the sender. Okay. This thing is just making a foolproof. That's not actually part of the smart contract. It's just sending money back if you're, if you're yeah. enough to So send. if you're stupid enough, so the idea that how to interact with the smart contract is that um, I sit on my address, with, which has 100 million, and I send Ether to, that, to the smart contract, to the yes smart contract, but the amount of Ether that I send is zero. That's the way that I'm supposed to, to count my, my Ether. For that. What this thing does is just, if somebody is stupid enough to actually send the, the Ether, not send zero, but send the Ether, then send it back. Yeah. But if we just say nobody's stupid enough to do this, we can remove these lines. We are down to one, two, three, four <laughs> lines of code, of which three lines are specification, a declaration, and one line is, is actually executing something. Why is this smart contract enough? Why, why has this thing decided over Ethereum's future? The, the one other one looks the same. It's, uh, it's not even, this one doesn't even have, here we lock yes, and then we lock no. It's, it's really literally just Logging. Somebody voted. Because probably they did a lot of work afterwards to uh, to check uh, who voted, how voted, etc. Absolutely. So there are additional rules on top of this. But the, these additional rules do not have to be part of the smart contract. The rules are just if somebody votes multiple times, only the last vote counts. If somebody first votes on one, then on the other, the first one is removed. This is something which you can do. I mean, essentially, you can ex um, extract this, these log messages into an Excel file and do the post-processing of counting the votes in the Excel file. And I can do that. Alessandro can do that. Most people can do that on their own, write that even on their own. Everybody can execute that on their own. Everybody will come to the same result, or if people come to different results, there is a reason for coming to different results. Different rules have been applied. Right? But I think this is this is fundamentally important. Right? These have, these these smart contracts have been written by the people who were most involved in Ethereum. It was an existential thing for Ethereum. They did not write fancy stuff. They they used the smart contract for the thing that is essentially necessary for recording the inputs. The actual counting is not that important. It can be done elsewhere. So why, why do we have to do a smart contract for this? Why was the smart contract useful? Why could you not just have clicked yes or no on a website? To prove that you own the coins. To prove that you own the coins, yes. But you could have signed a message from the address and pasted that, as a, that signed message that verifies that you own the coins to the website. No, the reason is different. The reason is that that, that website could just drop a few of the votes. Right? You need a record not only on all the valid votes, you also need to know that those are all votes. There are not more votes than that. So you need a proper uh, sort of notarized 
timestamp the valid account of what votes did happen. All the post-processing is pretty print, right? That's um, that's not important. I think that's um, sorry, and the second one, uh, how do you prevent people from voting when coins voting again? With this smart contract already? There is one block height. So you do not it does not count how many coins you have at the time when you vote. It counts how many, so you basically just register this address votes for yes, this address votes for no, but there is one block height. Uh, and this one block height, you count how much money is on the addresses that register for yes, how much money is on the addresses that register for no. So all that you need is someone, the blockchain. All the information is in the blockchain. There is no need to accumulate this data into the smart contract itself. It's already there. I think this is fundamentally important um, because, because a lot of the use cases that people come up with at first, they, they try to come to a result and think that printing into the smart contract, yes one, will someone enforce yes. This is of course not what happens. And it's not important for the contract to even know who won in the end if the contract doesn't execute an enforcement of the result. There's a very interesting practical effect of this kind of voting. Normal voting, you can poll the people or you can estimate and you can get a forecast of what it's likely going to be. Here, you could spoof it by just sending shortly before the block height, moving this big amount of funds. That means any forecasts could be completely wrong. Yeah. So that's, I think that's quite special. Yes, but that's that's something. Uh, well, you could you could change that if you if you do different rules, right? Here I said, and I'm not even entirely sure if this is true, that the last vote from one address counts. You could also say the first vote of one address counts, and if you vote again, that's discarded in the Excel post-processing. Or none of your vote counts if you vote twice. Sorry. Or you should be none of your votes. Yeah, as well. Um, yeah, well, if you if you do that, then it's complex because then you could. Move, vote, um, then move the funds and vote again. Um, then by that, those coins will vote, even if the address will not have voted. Right. Yeah. Then you come to this again. May I ask when you vote, uh, you made the attachment to vote, uh, should be at a specific point in time. If yes. you have a certain period, that can change. So, how is that enforced uh, that the result of the votes reflect the situation at one consistent point in time? You can execute your vote. So it's calling the smart contract at any time prior to the to the relevant timestamp, and at the relevant timestamp, you look at the blockchain which address has how many funds. Ah, so the kind of it, it's stated uh, you will vote and uh, sometime in the future that's in the relevant. Uh, but that's not part of the smart contract. No, I understand. It's just kind of how do then uh, how do you uh, interpret results, but that's different to normal uh, voting. Yes. Well, it, um, there are some things, and I, I agree, you could try to vote directly before the cutoff date. Right. I'm more thinking that we're not. I can vote three weeks ahead of time, yeah. but I can change the vote by moving significant funds in yeah. and out of an address that already voted. Yeah, right. You could basically have two addresses that voted yes and voted no, have a third address that actually holds the funds and only move, move the funds there. Like, something like that. Yeah, sure. What's the problem with that? I mean, if, if those are the rules of the voting, then that's fine. Not necessarily a problem. It just means that you even five minutes before the cut, you may not have a, a meaningful yes. forecast. Yes, that's true. 
but you get sent directly to both. It just prevents you from that. The same. The contract did not prevent you from that. The post processing prevents you from that. Where are the locks? The locks is um, if you if you do this, uh, if you call an event, then this event is being recorded, so it's, it's being processed by the blockchain nodes, uh, and you can then let's do this actually. You can then on your node or on Etherscan, no matter where you want to do it, look at the events that happened with the smart contract. And here you, you see all the events that happened. So here in this transaction, this address voted. Right. Funnily enough, that's, oh, that's now really uh, like two years ago. Uh, but what I could do now is I could vote. Right. So that would cost me a minute. And Maybe I should, just for fun. I could now vote. So there is not even a start time and an end time. Those things are out of band. They're out of contract. They don't matter. Okay, that might take a while. So the reason why, I'm, why I think that this is so, so instructive um, to think about is that this is what people do who... This is the way that people use smart contracts who really know about smart contracts. Blockchains are very good at notarization, at, at proving that something happened at some point in time. I'll just vote. I'm not even sure what I'm voting for right now, if this is yes or no. Absolutely. But, um, and I'm entering the amount of zero. Funnily enough, my UI doesn't even let me do that, but hey, luckily enough, I... You can send more than zero to your phone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the contract will send it back if you yeah. stupid enough. Yeah. Right. Uh, why, why can I... Write more yes, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. How much gas is this contract? Well, if you know this for a contract, it's not stupid, it's just irrelevant. The, the, the reason why people bring insurance as a use case for blockchains is because they say, hey, um, you do not need to, to rely on somebody making a decision, yes or no. You just input the, the, the conditions. What was the weather? What was the was this flight cancelled or was it not cancelled? Was the, the, the street wet on which this thing happened? And then there is deterministic execution coming to an agree to a result. Right? Having deterministic execution coming to a result is something that does not require a blockchain. The thing that requires a blockchain is getting the inputs into the blockchain. And here it's very obvious. You prove your ownership of the coins by because it's not an on-chain event. But if you if you would have um, somewhat uh, decisions over claims in, a, in an insurance uh, on-chain you would still need to, to feed the information that lead that, that enter the deterministic execution, and you would need to feed that information into the blockchain. You would need to feed in what's this flight council. Yes, you can then come to an agreement automatically, uh, get the result, this person should get money, or maybe if this ether risk contract, I'm not sure how, how that this particular one works, but if that thing has funds on it right, that are sort of locked in, so there's not an out-of-band payment, really in-band payment, this, this contract owns the money, then you can, as a result of that, just spend, send, send it out. But honestly, I don't see the, the difference between saying the input to the smart contract is, was the flight cancelled? If I say, yes, it was cancelled, then that one gets money. Or is the input to the smart contract, should that person get money? And if I say, yes, then that person gets money. Uh, there, there is no... What blockchains do is they, they order things, you cannot say, I did that before, or when one happened before event two, if the other one is true. You, you do have a, an ordered 
notarized record of the history that happened on chain. You do not magically get insight on what happened off chain. You still need to feed in information. And um, this deterministic execution is only relevant, is only uh, important if the result of that results in an on-chain event that happens as a result of the smart contract execution. In this case, even though it was the most important smart contract of all times up to now, uh, the result of this was not recorded on the blockchain. I think that's that's. I mean, this in is fact, in, in fact it was recorded. That's why we have two ethers now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it would have been fun if um, I mean, smart contracts can have a self-destruct function. It would have been fun if the Ethereum blockchain also has a self-destruct function. And based on, on yes or no, uh, you execute the self-destruct function or not. That would have been fun. That would have been enforcement. <laughs> but just uh, somewhat feeding information to a smart contract and getting, getting deterministic execution in the smart contract as opposed to getting deterministic execution of, well, I can just as well um, share my, my Excel sheet with somebody so that everybody knows before we need to end, before we go to court, we already know the result. This is what about this yeah. So let me see uh, if I wrote it. Yeah, two minutes ago. Yes. Yes. So this yes here is not part of the contract, right? That's just that um, power vote yes is a name that uh, that Ether, um, Etherscan gave to this smart contract. Also, that is totally out of bound. Good. So I feel there's a lot of relation with us, or that's their guess. Maybe, well, this value. Like everybody has Ether. Well, it's supposed to be a zero Ether contract. Uh, you should not stop me to that. Yeah, but it's probably like he said, so it's maybe like some of the function of the wallets that you yes. use to send it. Maybe so you cannot send it. Yes, it's not let me send without without money. Right. But we can see this here um, in the internal transaction. Uh, we have an internal transaction that sends me my money back. This was basically it. I wanted to be this to be a sort of one topic um, education session because I think it's a very important topic. Um, just don't do stupid with smart contracts just because you can. Um, there has to be a reason for it. And this one is a perfect example of where the reason was did not require record of the result. Are there any questions? Any comments? Any different ideas that you now have for what you want to use blockchains for? I mean, there are really these two things. There is there is on-chain and there is off-chain. Mm -hmm. If you if you want to combine those two, you need oracles. An oracle, like the, the local weather station that feeds in the information, did it rain or did it not rain, uh, making it likely that the plane did have a delay or not, or something of that type. And you could then have a smart contract that uses this information. So that the one that grabs that information, hence results on that information, is not the one feeding the information in. There are a few promising things in the direction. There is, what was it, uh, one of the major in um, financial markets, Thomson Reuters, mm -hmm. uh, they feed information onto the Ethereum blockchain, making it possible for smart contracts to use that information. That's great. I believe you fairly quickly run into a big game, small game fallacy. If, if the bets that are placed are sort of worth more than, um, than, than the security level of the one feeding the information, uh, 
that, that makes an, an attack like that. So I'm sort of hesitant to rely on that with big amounts of money. But it's, it's some, something nice to do. So we have Oracle, which is a problem, getting information from the real world onto the blockchain. And you have the opposite, enforcement, getting results from the blockchain into the real world. Even for this one, that did not really work. We do have Ethereum Classic. And if, if it would have gone the other way, we would also have had both. Maybe I should refrain from calling it the most influential smart contract ever. So, but those are the two unresolved, unsolved problems. So, if you do not want to rely on unsolved problems, the things that you can do are just totally on chain. So, it becomes interesting if, uh, if you have something which is valuable on its own on chain. For that, you have Bitcoin, you have Ether, although the reason that Ether is, has value is because of the smart contracting world, which that's not worth uh, ether with neither. Uh, you also have, have CryptoKitties, right? Because CryptoKitties are not worth something because of some out-of-chain thing. They are a native asset, that is. They are not ether, like the native, the native asset of the Ethereum blockchain. But they are a native asset in that they do not depend on something out-of-chain. Uh, what you can ensure on-chain is the token. What you cannot ensure is the thing that the token represents. If you have these USDT, for example, um, the ERC20 contract USDT, where there is a bank account somewhat somewhere, presumably, I'm not even sure what their idea is there, then you cannot get enforcement. Still, somebody off-chain decides over that bank account. So in that case, that is a token which is somewhat a proxy for a, for, for some off-chain asset. While a cryptocurrency is just a cryptocurrency. Maybe the future is not about connecting the blockchain and the real world and then solving all those issues, and which is enforceability, for example, which is very difficult, but rather that our whole life is moving more and more from real life to some kind of digital life. I mean, right now, as you said, the tokens represent the bank account, but we have no clue what is on that bank account and who enforces that you have access to that bank account, but what if your bank account does not exist anymore off-chain but only on-chain? Then you could represent it and then you have all the enforceability and all, all those kind of features. So maybe, maybe you need to rethink the whole thing. It's not about bringing blockchain to real life, but rather moving the real life onto the blockchain and not representing but just the life is more digital digital and on-chain than than it ever has been before. I mean it's like who would have thought 15 years ago mm. that our life is dominated and driven by some smartphones in our pockets. Yeah and uh, uh, um, this is happening to, to some extent CryptoKitties is actually an example. I mean CryptoKitties is always brought as a as a making something ridiculating something but this is actually an example of gamification. For example, the Rathas, there are uh, spells of Genesis is a, is a game where, where you do have on-chain assets, and in the case it's a counterparty asset, so not only Ethereum blockchain, but an Amida protocol on top of Bitcoin, where you have this mobile game and the, the characters, that the cards that you have in this mobile game depend on um, the, the tokens that you have on, on the address that you bind to that. And ecosystems start from it because others can then say, okay, I write a totally different game, but I use the same tokens or some of the same tokens at my own token. So that somebody who plays one of the games already has a head start on the second. 
where people then describe or ascribe value to digital things that they can literally own. I mean, maybe this would also be an education session, not for blockchain related, but for that could be a target market related on skins for, I don't even know the games, the names of these games. Some you know? Fortnite type games, whatever, where. Yeah. Or uh, mobile games where uh, where you really play um, against each other, and you can then um, buy, you can find them in game, or you can buy them for or uh, buy a ticket and win from from them. But you can also trade them with each other, just skins. So that in the game you look differently, or your weapon looks differently, or you have a hat, or something of that type, and people describe value of tens of thousands of dollars to these things that are literally useless. But they, they exist in a world in which they live, which is not yes. nothing. And that, that's something that, that is really old. I mean, the whole uh, Lindendor, right? That's Second life. Second right? life. Mm -hmm. I mean, that existed before blockchain. And, and it, you started trading Lindendor through eBay and all, and all the marketplaces. You just get more rich in the game. Take home message. Smart contracts. Blockchains do very specific things. Think about if you have a problem. Uh, what parts of that problem does blockchain solve? What parts does it not solve? And somewhat be minimal in that, right? And that also should inform possible use cases of blockchains, because some things might not be reasonable. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by CryptoFinance. We are happy to receive comments and feedback. Email your thoughts to research at cryptofinance.ch